Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yes, welcome back to another episode of the Two Sharp Reds with myself, Ollie Geel, and Australia's third favourite son and fourth favourite silver fox, Mark Schwarzer. Mark, this week is all about celebrating the end of the Australian golden generation, which is something that we'll touch on a little bit throughout the episode. To commemorate the end, I was going to get... An, uh, an Italian 2006 vintage, but I don't either have the bank account or cojones to pull something like that off. So I have gone for Australian wine. Uh, I think it's the, the cricket pitch, it's called. The Broken Wood Cricket Pitch from 2015. And how good's this? It's a combination of a Cab Sav, a Shiraz, and a Merlot. So you've been feeling so bad that you've not supplied any bowls of wine uh, since, I think, possibly the opening one, if sure. that's even possible. Yeah. Um, and then, so you've just gone completely sitting on the fence. You know I like a Cab Sav. You know I like a Merlot. Yeah. And obviously you're a big Shiraz drinker. Yeah. So you've just gone for the full combo, haven't you? And the theory being, if I've missed out on the last three weeks, if I combine three bottles of wine into the one, then hopefully I can sort of get away with it. And then also, so the cricket pitches are nice, you know, because it is the end of the golden generation. Cricket's generally something that people can take up once they've retired, just as a, a nice simple sport on the Sunday. You would think so. I mean, in England, yeah. it's pretty difficult because the weather really generally plays against you. Sure. And that's probably why the English cricket team is so average, let's yeah. be honest. Oh, I mean, geez. the weather is against them, let's be honest. That's fighting words, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, we might have to add as well, for this week, our very first time, we've actually added cheese to the mix. Cheese grommet. We have, and it's uh, queso manchego from Spain. And for anyone who, who who's been to Spain, knows what it's like to have a tapas. It's pretty much that that cheese that you get in those triangle pieces when you order a tapas. Um, and queso manchego is pretty much the, the the national cheese that they use, and we're big fans of it. Initial thoughts, flavors. Can you can you sense the fact that there's Cab Sav, Shiraz, and Merlot all in all in one there? I do because I think um, if it were just a Shiraz, it would be a lot heavier, a lot more in your face about uh, in, in intense flavours. Whereas this, there's a, there's an element of smoothness to it, the softer Shiraz. Mark, let's get straight into it. Let's uh, let's update everyone on the sack race because this is uh, a race that started almost three weeks ago, and and since then, so three episodes in for us. There's just been it's been a, a, like a delicatessen of of different managers. It's been calling different numbers. It's unbelievable. So, where would you like to start in terms of an update? Well, an update is that uh, obviously Everton, um, mm-hmm. as we talked about last week, got rid of Marco Silva, uh, Duncan Ferguson took over, and. Fantastic start to, to his... Perfect, uh, really, wasn't it? Well, no, brilliant. I mean, listen, what did we expect? It's Duncan Ferguson. He's highly emotional, big guy. He wears his Everton heart on his sleeve. It's like the fans love him. He was a fighter as a player. He was one of those people that you never wanted to upset when you okay. played against him. You had to be nice to him. 
speak to him about his pigeons. He has racing pigeons. Talk to him and, and just ask him how he is, what a wonderful day it is and everything else and what's life like in general. Try and change the subject. Do not annoy him. Do not make him angry. If you made him angry, which I did do. How do you do that? Well, having a bit of an argument with him if you if he challenges you because he was always fully committed. So uh, the aerial battles I had with him uh, on so many occasions were, were ones that I at times I really enjoyed and other times I thought, well, this is going to hurt. And because he just went in full-blooded and, and even more so when you annoyed him. And sometimes you'd have an argument. Sometimes you'd turn around and bite at him because he's challenged you a little bit over-enthusiastically. And you would see his eyes, his eyes would look, and his ears, and he'd just be steam coming out of that. And you thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Really? I mean, the stories are over here. And it's, it's, well, I say stories. They're, they're facts. He's been broken into twice in his house. Right. On both occasions, um, the, the offenders have ended up in hospital. So there's one right. person you do not want to sure. break into. Sure. It's Duncan Ferguson's house. So let's look at that performance in particular. They were sensational. They were unlike anything that we've seen from Everton so far this season. We also saw you touched on the passion, and and he really was. I mean, it's following on the theme from Jose Mourinho and the ball kid, you know, picking him up at the end and and hugs. I mean, it it kind of reminds me of Jose Mourinho running down the touchline when he was managing Porto against Manchester United, and they they obviously beat them at Old Trafford, which was an enormous result for Porto. And and it was, it was, it was. There were memories of that coming back, but this was even more intense, and it was just typical Duncan Ferguson and that passion and that love that he has for 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 Everton. And you know what? It, It was the perfect scene at home against a big club like Chelsea who are, who have rocked a little bit of late. Mm. So I think it was a perfect game to start. And if you're in that change room as a player, and, and one thing they've lacked over, over the last couple of months is a little bit of heart, Everton. They've lacked that passion and that heart. Well, I wonder how long he's going to take charge for because looking at reports at the moment, which is just incredible to think that this is, you know, I don't know exactly how serious to take this. But uh, Emery. Emery could be going to Everton. That's the merry-go-round, and that would be a big surprise to me. I just think, you know, his he's, he's lack of command of the English language is definitely an issue. Uh, I think that uh, the way that it unfolded at Arsenal, in the end, it seemed rudderless. It seemed direct, directionless. Uh, his acquisitions also were definitely questionable. You know, um, Pepe, you need a defender and you go and buy a wide attacking player, which they tend to have mm-hmm. a, an abundance of, of attacking options. They get rid of a Wobi, who's one of those options, and they go and buy Pepe rather than shoring up the defence. Yes, they brought in David Luiz, but David Luiz wasn't going to rectify their, their, their problems Let's not single-handedly. forget Saliba who will be coming in next season, and also Kieran Tierney. So there was... Yeah, but Kieran Tierney's been there, and he's struggled to settle. Well, so one little hidden storyline amongst all of that that you touched on was the fact that Emery sold Awobi to Everton. So if you're Awobi, and we don't know what he might be thinking, what he thinks of Emery, didn't have a lot of time with him. Uh, and, you know, it's happened before. Like, say, for example, when, when Mourinho went to United, I was thinking, oh, one mutter, that's uncomfortable. But... It, turned out okay, you know, the relationship between them. But what would Awobi be thinking? And, and do you think anyone at the club would be going to... If the, if the reports are genuine and someone's been told, yep, he will be here at the end of the week, are people going to Awobi and going, oh, oh, right, what can we expect? What's he actually like? 
No, there's no doubt about it. And, and the question is whether or not Iwobi's alluded to what it was like when he first arrived. I mean, he could have been talking about how either it was great and the manager fully understood his his side of things that he wanted to move on. He wanted to go to a club where he was going to play more more game more hours of football. At uh, Arsenal, he was in and out of the side a lot. Um, you know, I, you know back, what you touched there on Jose Mourinho and Juan Mata. I know that when he was at Chelsea. He had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. They they brought in a lot of attacking minor players. They brought in Andre Schürrle. They brought in uh, Salah. They had to make a decision. They needed to make way for these players coming through the next generation of players. He didn't want to get rid of Oscar. He didn't. He wanted. They just we signed um, uh, Willian as well. Mm-hmm. Hazard. So he had someone had to make way. Someone had to leave, and he he chose Juan Mata. Juan Mata was the fall guy, even though he was like I think two years in a row he was Player of the Year. So loved by the Chelsea fans, so he was the full guy. I don't think it was not personal, right? And I think Mourinho showed that when he went to United that it wasn't personal. It yep. was clearly a decision based on having to make make way and making room in the squad for this next generation of players coming through. So then, looking at another manager, let's look at uh, Eddie Howe. We touched on him a couple of episodes ago. Now that uh, he's driving a Vauxhall, but he wants to be driving a Porsche. Essentially, what, what's he driving at the moment? Well, everyone loves to, everyone would love to drive a Porsche. The question is, the reality is, where, where do you lie? Where, what's your next step? Do you go from driving a Vauxhall, top of the range, to driving a Porsche? No, not normally. And anyhow, I don't think ever expected that. I think what what's happened now is that that uh, his Vauxhall is off the gar- off off the roads in the garage, and at the moment, there's no signs of it coming back on the road again. Um, I think he's in serious danger of being a write-off. Yeah. I mean, it's five games in a row now they've lost. Yeah. And he, 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 seems, he seems, again, like he's, he's coming away from each game as it goes, scratching his head. Mm. I know he's got a lot of injuries, and I know that that's also one of his bigger problems is that the amount of injuries that he has. Um, but again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned for them, and, and I know that Eddie Howell pretty much has the keys of Bournemouth and without Eddie Howe at the helm, then Bournemouth wouldn't be what that's kind of a bit like Arsene Wenger yep. at Arsenal. Would Arsenal be the Arsenal club they are today had Arsene Wenger not been at the helm for so long? I mean, it's it's difficult to say, yes, they would have been anyway, but you'd like to think they would have been somewhere there or thereabouts just by the sheer nature and size of Arsenal and the tradition of the club. Whereas Bournemouth, as we all know, is they've, they've, they've been on the edge of, of disappearing completely yep. in terms of uh, no funds, you know, going down, all the bottom, you know, down, down to the bottom league, down to the League Two and making all its way back up again through the efforts predominantly. Obviously, the backing's there, but predominantly through Eddie Howell and his team. So he's done an amazing and remarkable job. Will I mean, Arsenal fans will agree. Do people outstay their welcome? Sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. And I think they're in danger. There are signs there of, of, of an Arsene Wenger with Arsenal. Are, there, are people in danger of overstaying their welcome? Are they in danger of tarnishing their reputation? I hope for, for Bournemouth and I hope for Eddie Howley he's not. I hope they're able to turn things around. You'd like to think so. No one knows that team in that club as well as Eddie Howell does. No, well, However, the wheels have seriously come off. The good thing for them is they're approaching January so they can go and get an MIT and start improving the areas that need to be improved on. Yeah, well, that, that's where it comes down to does, does the, the, the owner of the garage decide that actually, you know what, 
I'm I'm prepared to allow you know to to, to fork out some more money mm-hmm. to extend the warranty exactly. And I don't know whether uh, you know I, I would think they still would. But then you know what? How many games are there? Still probably four games or so away until in January. If he were to go on and continue to lose the next couple of games, all of a sudden there's some serious panic stations starting to happen. Halftime drinks here on the Two Sharp Reds, Mark. Uh, Firstly, I mean, it's exciting that we've matched it with cheese for the first time. It's totally enhanced my experience. It's much better. I agree with you. I think it does. It makes it, um, it gives you a different experience, different taste. It livens up the taste buds even more. Yeah, I like it. It's nice. It's a a nice drink. It's um, definitely something I would definitely buy. We saw, Mark, on the weekend, one of the great goals, certainly the goal of the season so far. So I'm talking, of course, about the Tottenham game where... Actually, the Harry Kane goal to open things up at the start, that was, I was thinking, geez, that could be a contender for goal of the year. Don't remember it. It's only Sonaldo, mate. Sonaldo is the goal of the season already. <laughs> and it, phenomenal, wasn't it? Already way ahead for goal of the season. It's a phenomenal goal. And yes, technically, I mean, he, he beats seven players. I mean, that's just ridiculous. How many actually did he go around and. and, and how many of them actually tried to tried to put a tackle on him? I think there was only one or two. That's only because of the fact that he was running at such a pace exactly. with the ball yep. under control. Every one of those other players obviously didn't have the ball. And they still couldn't get him. They still could not stop him. Because the thing that you mostly notice about similar goals, I think the first thing that comes to my head, remember that goal that Bale scored in a cup game, cup final against Barcelona, where... He just pushed the ball out and ran out of the sideline. So if you compare it to any other goal where it requires genuine pace, right, you normally see the player push the ball 5, 10 metres in front of them to then hopefully catch up to the ball. But the thing that blew my mind is what you just touched on, is the fact that he just kept the ball seemingly attached to his foot. And he didn't run a straight line. And he didn't run a straight line either. So he, he had to do a bit of a slalom. So it, it was the, the, the control, the speed... Uh, the finesse, the calmness, the coolness. He had times where he was saying afterwards, I wanted to pass the ball. But every time it got to a point where he thought, actually, I'll pass it. Actually, no, I've got so much room to still keep going. I'm going to go. And then all of a sudden, it just opens up for him. Because I think, I think all of them thought they were going to pass it at some stage. And, until, and once they realized he wasn't because he was so close to goal, it was, almost, it was too late. So, it, you know, it's a brilliant, brilliant goal. Um, and it's one that will be remembered for a very long, long time. It's a bit like the, the Ryan Giggs run down the left-hand mm-hmm. side um, against Arsenal in Sheffield that time in the FA yep. Cup, which was, again, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful goal. Uh, but this is right up there with one of you – know, it's up there in the, in the top probably 10 or so goals scored in the Premier League ever. They look like they've all been energised. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those ones – and it's an interesting situation right now, again, in the Premier League and particularly with Manchester City. Manchester City look really flat. They look, they look fatigued mm-hmm. mentally and, and then physically. So when you, once you're mentally fatigued, everything looks fatigued. So under Poch, Tottenham looked that way. Deli Ali couldn't get a rhythm, you know, to name one of them. And Son was still doing his things. However, Harry Kane obviously was still scoring goals, but they still didn't score and perform with any kind of consistency. So you get a new manager, a different approach. A manager walks in with a presence in Jose Mourinho. And he, I'm telling you, there's one thing. There's, not, there's one thing you certainly can't deny about Jose Mourinho is that when he walks in a room, there's a presence. Yeah. And he, he, the minute he walks in, you automatically pay attention 
and you, you, you're listening to everything he says. How much did you know about him the first time you met him? Obviously, you probably would have known his CV. Yeah, of course. I, I, I played against uh, Chelsea when he was first when he first managed Chelsea. Actually, he I played in the game uh, where he suffered his highest ever defeat as a, as the Chelsea manager back then. We beat them three 0 at the Riverside. Wow! So, which was wonderful. <laughs> I wasn't a real big fan of him. Yeah. I have to be honest with you. I didn't like all that circus, all the stuff that went around with it. I didn't really like it. And I know he got upset once. Uh, he commented once because I said after that game we beat them three nil. I was astounded that pretty much every single player just stormed off the pitch. No one shook hands. The manager took off. No one. And I said afterwards, how poor was that from Chelsea? You know, listen, you know, we phenomenal result. They could do the very least and, and, and showing a bit of respect and, and shaking hands. And he made a comment in the press afterwards about it. So there was a little bit of a bite, but nothing major. Obviously, it didn't, uh, it didn't happen for me going to Chelsea afterwards. Um, but then once you get to know someone, it's like anything. Once you get to know someone, generally we form, a, we, we form an opinion of someone very easily via the media, via the press, from a distance. And until you actually get to meet someone, uh, then you truly find out what someone is like. And, uh, you know, Jose is a very, very interesting character. Uh, he's a winner. And, uh, you know, people are talking about Pep Guardiola and he's such a bad loser. I mean, all the top, top managers are bad losers. Sure. That's- this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's why they're top managers. Mark, uh, as I touched on a little bit earlier, this is uh, it's a sad time for Australian football fans, but it's also a time to, to look back and celebrate and commemorate what was the golden generation. But Mark Milligan has retired from international football, so he will still play club football with Southend United. So in 2006, you had Mark Milligan and Michael Beecham, who was kind of an anomaly in terms of that squad. Yep. They were players, they were younger, they weren't playing at the highest level, um, but they were kind of included, I think, to gain invaluable experience for the future. And um, I think Millsy and uh, Michael Beecham couldn't believe their luck, really, to be involved. So it was a, it was a, it was a great experience for them. And uh, so they're, they're kind of classed still as that part of that golden generation, even though they didn't really partake in that, in that, era, in that series or that time. But they did go on and become, particularly Mark Milligan, a, a mainstayer and a very important player within the, the national team um, setup. And it probably wasn't until post, uh, yeah, it would have been after 2010 when he kind of become more, more probably even leading up to um, uh, Brazil in, thir- in 14, where he became a more of a main, main sort of player, mainstay player within that team. Um, and uh, you know he took over as captain for for a while as well. So you know he was, a, I think, a player that uh, has had a, had a tremendous career 
uh, Mills is a top guy and uh, he's he's always stayed uh, you know level headed and uh, I think he's been always a great example and a, and, a, and a valuable team member to to the Socceroos over throughout his whole time involved. You know, I remember back in two thousand and six, you know he. He was he was a lot quieter, obviously, because because he was so young and and, and new to the setup. Um, but again, he was not also someone that walked around or, or, or ran around the pitch, scratting and screaming at people. Quietly spoken, but but when he did speak, you listened. How does the the title Golden Generation sit with you guys? Um, because from an outs- and you're very humble when you, you mention it, but it absolutely is and was and probably for a long time will be the Golden Generation of Australian football. How did that title sit with you all, and were you aware of it at the time, or is it like is it like how boy bands speak about it? Like you know, for that five five year period, it's a whirlwind. You don't know what country you're in. Then at the end of it all, you look back and go, "Wow, what, look at what we've achieved." No, we we knew how special the accomplishment was. We knew that it was gonna it was gonna change things. It was going to change the landscape of football in Australia. We just didn't realise it would change it as dramatically as it did. We didn't realise it would give it as big a boost and really put football on the map within Australia. And and I think 2005, beating Uruguay over those two legs, and one would argue and say it was partly also because of the dramatic circumstances of yep. which we did it, and that plays its part. And also, I, I think... The country had its eyes even more on the game because it was at a time when we, we had issues in Australia with, with racial tension. There was some rioting going on. There was some, some, some very, very unsavory incidents that occurred. And football is that code that unites everyone from all different backgrounds. And, and I think also there was part of, part of certain aspects of, of, of media possibly or, or other codes maybe were just waiting for a moment that football hooliganism maybe would rear its ugly head because it's football and that always happens in football. It doesn't happen in any other code apparently, which we all know it does. Yeah. But it's very well swept under the carpet. So that, that's actually one of the, not only one of the proudest moments in terms of what we accomplished on the football field and what that result ultimately meant was qualification of the World Cup, but also I was, one of my proudest moments was how the Australian public reacted to the national team, that football team, that occasion, the people within that stadium in particular because they were there, but also the response afterwards from a nation of, of how together everyone was. And it was the first time in a long, long time. So that, that's a very special time, very it was special pride, wasn't it? It, it? just We felt proud. 100%. And, fo- and, and then the people that had followed the journey f- forever, who were diehard, diehard football fans, who know the history of it, know also too well about the the failed attempts yeah. how close we've been in the past how how close but how so far and i also think for the generation of 1974 that qualified for that world cup and participated in that world cup there it was also an acknowledgement of what an accomplishment they'd made i think they their profiles were lifted and they were starting to receive the 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 the, the recognition that they actually deserved yeah. and hadn't received um, so it all went kind of hand in hand. Of course, we at that moment received most of it, but it was a look back at, listen, we, it's the first time since 1974. This is how big of an occasion it is. So imagine how big an occasion it was back then, yeah. even though it didn't receive the same sort of recognition. And, and, I, and I think people on the peripheral of the game started to acknowledge that a little bit more and, and understand it a little bit more. The exciting thing is, 
we can now officially go headfirst into the future of Australian football. We're looking at a couple of things. Who leads the team now? And what what's next for Australian football? Is the expectation to just make the World Cup and then see what we can do once we're there? Or what what is next? And who's, who's going to lead? You've always got to raise the bar. And you know what? The very the, bare, the the bar at the very bare minimum is qualification. The game needs it. From now on, <laughs> sustainability yep. in the game within the game. The the revenue that's generated just from qualifying for a World Cup is, I think, invaluable and a necessity for the game the game to grow and to succeed. So the qualification is a bare minimum. We we have to qualify for the World Cup. We have to continuously put ourselves in the shop window, give ourselves a chance to develop that little bit further. And, you know, we're, we're a multicultural country. We, we, we have a lot of people who, who come from various backgrounds. We want to make the Socceroos a brand, a, a team that every young Australian, doesn't matter which background they come from, they are hungry and determined and have this passion to want to play for the Socceroos, not think and go, well, the Socceroos haven't qualified for a World Cup since 2018 and now we're already, you know, 2030 and haven't qualified again since. They want to be a team that we need, we want to go, I want to go play in a World Cup, I want to play with for Australia. They are a team that we can't underestimate. They're a team that are uh, have a chance winning the Asian Cup, uh, one of the best teams in Asia, if not the best team. And going to a World Cup is becoming a mentality. It becomes not a, not a divine right yep. like Uruguay thought they had back in 2005 to qualify for the 2006 World Cup because that's also not in our nature to become arrogant. We, we want to be seen as a team that the bare minimum is qualification and let's then work towards bettering our previous results, bet, trying to improve upon our best ever result. And our best ever result was qualifying in 2006 for the knockout stage. That, that's our best ever performance overall at a World Cup. Sure. Our best individual performance was beating Serbia in 2010. And yeah. unfortunately, the late Pim Verbeek never received that recognition because unfortunately, the haters, uh, the people that had their nose pulled out of joint because of the one comment that Pim Verbeek made about the A-League and about the level of the A-League, by comparison of a player, he'd rather have a player playing in a second training in a second division side in Europe than playing in the A League. Tarnished everything that he did, and unfortunately, people don't give him that recognition. Only now, some people are starting to say, "Well, actually, what he accomplished was amazing." And unfortunately, sometimes uh, a dramatic incident like this only sure. opens the door for people to then finally admit. Um, so that's the next. That's the next thing. One or the other. Let's. Let's try and beat that amazing accomplishment of beating a top, top team at a World Cup in Serbia. That was our last win in a World Cup. Yeah. Let's be honest. We, we, that was 2010. Pim Verbeek was the manager, our last ever win in a World Cup. So we've had two World Cups since and not won a, won a single game. So in order to try and to do that, we need a leader, we need a captain. Who steps up? Because... One thing that we've not necessarily always done, but it's it's certainly been an aspect, uh, is selecting a captain that's your best player. You know, if you looked at off the top of my head, um, there's an example: uh, uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang's captain of Gabon because he's the only decent player, right? That's the natural progression. 
So what? What if we want to not you know go against that? Aaron Moy is not captain material. I don't think he doesn't vocalise, but you don't necessarily. You can also you know lead by example and your performances. But but who's the natural? Is Matty Ryan up to the task? Do we think, or is he the? Yeah, trying you know not being biased and and really looking at the individual players that are on offer in terms of or, or in a position to captain the side. And I don't think necessarily you, it has to be your best player because your best player doesn't always mean that he's the best person to lead or she, yep. if you're talking about the Matildas. I, I, I think that it, it depends on their personalities. And again, it depends also on what a manager expects from their captain. Does the captain need to be somebody who screams and shouts and, and, and leads on the pitch all the time in, in that sort of manner? Or is he someone that... that uh, or he or she, someone who who leads by example, is, is is it someone who has a combination of both? I'd like to think it's more of a combination of both. If you are in an ideal scenario to have, to, to have such a person, mm. um, I, I think Matty Ryan is probably the best candidate for it on a, on a permanent basis. Yep, I think he conducts himself very very well. He's playing at the highest level, which is always a bonus. He knows he knows what it's like to play against some of the best players in the world. Um, Consistently, and, he, and and he's performing very, very well. Aaron Moy, like you said, the big question mark is about Aaron. Is 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 his ability to 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 stand in front of a camera? Does he actually want to? And and my guess on it is most of the time he would rather not. And that automatically is an issue because you need your captain also to be someone who's not afraid to stand in front of the group, to to lead by example, to express uh his opinion but also on the same by the same token to engage with his fellow teammates and and want to have that responsibility to have that connection between the players and and the manager i mean i remember a time we were at um at fulham and uh mark hughes had taken over as manager from from roy hodson and uh we we went through a period of time a really tough period of time where where things weren't going very well results weren't great and Mark, Mark Hughes wanted us to play a slightly different type of football and he wanted us to, to, to be engaging higher up the pitch, put the opposition under a lot more pressure in, in, in more forward areas, uh, enabling you then to attack from a, from a better position, a higher position. But also the other, the other little tweak that he wanted to, to make was that defending, when you're defending, whether it's a midfielder, whether it's an attacker, whether it's a def- defender, was to rather than show the player block the line down the, down the outside, but show them inside. Because the way we trained was players would shuffle across and block that path within, and you would double up on players. He wanted us to actually show the player down the line. But all he did was tell us. Mark, it's uh, time to come to the end of the episode, unfortunately, uh, and as well as the, the end of the bottle of the, the broken wood cricket pitch. Um, what, what are your thoughts on it? It was uh, the combination between a, a Cab Sav, a Shiraz, and a Merlot, your overall thoughts towards the end? I like it. It's a very nice, nice drink. It's uh, it's quite fruity. Mm-hmm. It's not doing all sorts. It's just I, I think it's a very enjoyable drink. And and uh, this is a player. Middlesbrough fans will remember him very clearly. Uh, a player that you you, in, you enjoy playing with. Did his job. Did, a, did his job always really well to the best of his ability. Wore his heart on his sleeve. Technically, was a pretty good player. Very good work rate. Had been at the club for quite some time. When I first signed at the club, really nice guy. Top, top guy. Um, and someone that was really great to have around. Always positive. Always had a smile on his face. 
always was a half glass full type of guy a nice wine a really good wine i'm happy to drink it i could drink it every day you you're happy to be in its company i'm comparing it with my ex-teammate from middlesbrough robbie musto really is that right yep I didn't see that from the description. I'm surprised. No, no, no. Really good guy. Top guy. Okay. Good footballer. Um, not not, not world class, obviously. Not international class, but he was a really good footballer and did a really good job at, uh, at Middlesbrough. So I've gone for someone who, I'm going to be honest with you, I struggled with this time around because normally the wines we have, there's one... It's one thing about it, right, that grabs you, and you know straight away, you know, whether it's the, you know, a spark in the flavour or, or where it hits the palate in particular. But the key thing that I'm going for this time around is the fact that this is such a blend, so it doesn't do one thing. It's It, it, it means a lot more. So it is a combination of a Cab Sav, a Shiraz, and a Merlot, somehow, all in, in one bottle. And so I'm going for someone who can represent more than one thing is is not necessarily on the pitch but I'm just talking about in the broader picture um, they're capable of doing a lot of different things uh, I've got it I've got it okay it's the dragon the, who's the dragon the dragon isn't the dragon in Arsenal no. oh uh, what's his <laughs> <laughs> off the pitch yeah no, yeah the dinosaur oh dinosaur dragon yeah, same whatever. thing looks the same Ganosaurus. Gunnosaurus, isn't That's it? Gunnosaurus. Gunnosaurus, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very funny. No, I'm going for, for someone who, uh, yeah, can represent more than one thing and is doing greater things outside just their position on the pitch. Uh, and for that in mind, I'm going with Samantha Kerr. I, I feel like we know that she's talented at not just football. Um, you know, she's got... Uh, a tremendous uh, athletic family. Her brother Daniel Kerr, for example, extremely talented at AFL if she if she wanted to be. And I think also the fact that she's not just a footballer; she's someone who is um, really leading the line in 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 terms of the Matildas and the way that Australian football is is talked about and considered when it comes to to the female side of things. And I think she stands for just a lot more than just being one of the better players in the world. I think that there's there's lots of strings to her bow, and that's that's why I'm going for this combination of this wine and comparing it to Scam Kerr. Thanks for that, Mark. Another enjoyable episode of the Two Sharp Reds. Also, check us out um, at Optus Sport on, uh, on Instagram because we're going to post a picture um, and a few videos I want our listeners to, to get involved. Um, I want them to really recommend a few bottles because there's a French wine in particular that someone got in touch with us about, which I've really got my eyes on, which is really going to be great. So adopt the sport for all of that at Mark Schwarzer at Oli Gill. Um, Mark, I suppose we can end this by cheesing to the golden generation of Australian football. Absolutely. Here's the golden generation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 